According to our next guest, if companies want to stop quiet quitting, they need to take burnout seriously. Joining us to discuss the issue and what can be done to better support employees experiencing burnout is Claudia Mangin, a professor in Responsible Organizations, Concordia University. Good morning to you, Claudine. Good morning. How are you? Good. I want to make sure. Am I saying your last name correctly? That's yes, you're saying oh, it correctly. Perfect. Well, thank you for taking the time with us. And it's my pleasure. Uh, let's, thank you for having me. Thank you. Let's talk about this because it's measurable. The uh, prevalence of burnout among Canadians in 2023. Uh, let's compare it to a year before. What did you find? Yeah, so I uh, I looked at uh, some data at this, and it turns out it's actually now uh, bigger than last year. So. Uh, a full 36% of employees are now more burned out than last year. So we're at about a quarter to a third of Canadians who are feeling burned out. So that's not negligible. A quarter to a third, that's many people who are burned out. That's a high number, and that's a lot of people that say they're experiencing it. So, I mean, how does this relate, this burnout feeling? How does it relate to the concept of, of quiet quitting? How can we relate the two? So when you look at quiet quitting, what this refers to is that you stay on your job, but you don't go beyond what is required by the job description. So you're doing what your job describes and you're not putting in any extra work. And and so that means you're really holding the boundaries of your work. So you're not going beyond what is required and that is oftentimes the only thing you can do if you're burned out, because oftentimes burnout happens when you're expected to do more than what is in your job description. And, and so if your employer is not addressing these expectations, the only thing beyond quitting your job, actually quitting, is to do this quiet quitting where you're just keeping to your job description. And we know a lot of people have also actually quit their job. So that is also a direct consequence of burnout. Claudine, it, it's interesting to me because we went through the pandemic. By all accounts, we are past the pandemic. So does the research explain this lag as to why like a year year and change after that we have put the, the cap on the pandemic that we're seeing burnout? So I think, I mean, if you look at a year, a year is not long in terms of time it takes to change a culture in a company. And so burnout is not, I think, something that is essentially new that came with the pandemic. It's something we became much more aware of because of the pandemic. So we started talking about it. We started putting names on it. But it's something that is inherent to a system that we have where essentially companies, they try to make money with employees and using employees. And so you try to get as a company as much work as possible out of your employees. And, and so that's not something that is inherently new to the pandemic. And so in order to change that system, it also takes time. It takes time, first of all, to speak up. We need to speak up about it. We need to talk about how this is a very serious problem, not just for employees, but also for organizations, because they're dealing with a tremendous turnover and it's becoming increasingly difficult to hire employees because they don't want to put up with this anymore. So, so that's why it takes so much time and that's why we don't see changes right away. 
which is kind of strange because workplaces, businesses, companies, you know, business mm-hmm. owners must know that this is an issue and yet aren't really addressing sort of the root cause of the burnout. So that's, I would think that's something that really should be being talked about. I mean, from the from the owner's perspective, this is something they need to look at. Why are people feeling burned out? Why are they doing quiet quitting? And then work on it from that end, from the top end mm-hmm. down, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that is very true. So Um, you would think that because companies are directly feeling the consequences of this, that they would actually address it. But like I said, it's difficult to change corporate culture. So especially if you have very large organizations, it starts already with the tone at the top. So if you have leadership that tries to put this on employees, and that's something that we see a lot, that companies will say, well, here are things you can do if you feel burned out. So do some yoga, do some self-help, and things will go better. Well, that is essentially, you know, shipping the problem off to the employees, even though it's a problem with the ways in which work is designed. So first of all, companies, they have to actually admit that they're part of the problem. And that's something that oftentimes isn't happening. So it starts with the diagnosis, what's causing the problem. And unless you get that correct and you're willing to do the hard work of examining your own company and and what's, what's not going well there, you're not going to solve the problem by having people do more yoga. That's not going to help it. So it really takes organizational leadership that's willing to face the hard truth and and ask itself, okay, how am I contributing to this problem? And how as a leader can I not just talk differently about this, but also act differently and and set a different tone and, and, and change the ways in which work is done in my company? Speaking with Claudine Mangen, a professor in responsible organizations from Concordia University. And uh, Claudine, you mentioned the, the yoga is not going to solve it. Uh, this, this, this survey lasered in on Canadian uh, you know, workforce and uh, Canadian employees. Can we take a page from other countries who are doing things beyond yoga to keep their employees happy and engaged and to, to stop the quiet quitting? Mm-hmm. So I think this is a, a very good question. What do other other countries do? So I think it's useful to compare not just in terms of organizations, but also in terms of employees. I think a, a big part of the answer is, well, how much are employees actually able to convey that they're, first of all, burned out? And, and how much do they actually have power to push back against employers and say, look, this isn't working for us, you've got to do something. So we're dealing here with power imbalances. And so when we're interested in learning, well, how do other countries deal with this? We can look at practices that happen in other places, like how much do other employees elsewhere have power to push back against this? And this is, for instance, where something like units comes into place. They can help with this, you know. So I think this is where it can be helpful to look elsewhere. And beyond the thought of bringing a union in, because that's not going to be very popular to a lot of businesses and companies. But, you know, in your research, did you find, you know, what people were looking for or wanting in order to avoid the burnout and the quiet quitting? Is it a better work-life balance? Is it a higher salary? Yeah, so it has to do with that, but it also has to do with the culture within the organization. So the ways in which expectations are created and in and the ways in which you have workplaces that emphasize that you should go beyond what is a really uh, your work description. So it's about creating healthy expectations. So for instance, if you have a leader who's going to send out emails during the weekend, well, that creates the expectations that you're supposed to work on the weekends. Uh, you know, it's you could say, well, that's something simple, but oftentimes the devil is in these details. How is work expected to be uh, done and when is it supposed to be done? 
And we know we now live in a world where technology is everywhere, and this can be very helpful, but it also can be problematic for employees because you know, we oftentimes take our work home with us. It's in our heads and the technology is there. So it's easy to be tempted on things like emails and to work remotely, even beyond work hours. And so I think this is where it's important that leaders, organizational leaders, they engage with their employees and they have very honest conversations with them and are willing to listen to what's not working. And so, of course, that's oftentimes difficult for employees because they are fearful of speaking up. They need to keep their jobs. They don't want to be, be blamed for something. So it's creating this, this atmosphere where people are willing to speak up, where they feel that they're heard and where they feel that the leadership really cares about, about shifting the conversation. Excellent. Timely topic. Thanks for your time, Claudine. We appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's Claudine Mangen, Professor in Responsible Organizations from Concordia University. Eight eighteen now in in any networking opportunity, first impressions are everything, but bad behavior can make the kind of lasting impression you don't want. Joining us to talk about how to network properly during the Calgary Stampede is brand specialist who is also an author and a speaker, Robin Braley. Good morning, Robin. Thanks for joining us. Yahoo, Sue and Andy. <laughs> Yahoo to you. Hey, Stampede, we know it's all about a good time, right? But some business does actually still get done. So how do we approach the mix of business and party, Robin? Well, the Calgary Stampede is so unique in many ways. What many people don't know is that it's the biggest networking marathon in the world. It's a people mixer. Senior executives join the new guys who just started and are sweeping the floors in the back of the, the, the factory. You have access to people you wouldn't be able to meet at other times of the year. Uh, it's a time for building relationships and meeting new people. It, it, it absolutely is. It's funny because I'm not sure if it's always been that way or if it's kind of morphed into it. It's something, you know, you go as far. One of, one of your tips is to drop a target list of those events you want to attend. So literally, you have to plan even before you get to these events. Well, do a little research and set some goals. Identify company officials you'd like to meet. I'm in marketing, so I always aim for uh, the marketing vice president or the company owner. Uh, research company websites, LinkedIn profiles. They have great information. They also have information that will serve as conversation starters. This one I love because I think it is truly important no matter what you do. Create a killer elevator speech. What is that, first of all? Well, first of all, uh, the idea is that you get on an elevator on the fifth floor, and by the time you reach the first floor, you will have explained in about three to four sentences who you are and what you do. And in an exciting, not boring way, too. <laughs> That's right. One of the things, because we are there, to, to, well, if it's a morning thing, to have a pancake, if it's an afternoon, maybe a beef on a bun and a brewski. Uh, you mentioned kind of knowing when to start and when to stop, when to start talking business and when to stop. How can we know when to shut it off? Well, that's through active listening. When you ask a question, make sure you leave time and listen to what the other person is saying. And you will get... Uh, uh, cues from the other person when the conversation is winding down or on the converse you may 
feel that it's time to move on to the next person. And you need to have a way to get out of the conversation. For example, just extend your hand and say, Bill, it's been great to meet you. Uh, I think I need some more beans. And you'll be able to just walk away from the conversation. Yeah, I think that's a good point to remember, you know, sort of on that note is don't be the person who, you know, corners somebody and never stops talking to that person. Let them go. Let them go. Let yourself go and go talk to other people, right? It's important. And the way you talk to other people, extend your right hand, lean slightly forward, and say your name. Hi, I'm Robin Braley. People will automatically return the favor. And uh, go with conversation starters about the weather, sports, or relevant topics. Uh, These days you can say, hey, how about them flames? And you're into a conversation. But keep it light. You mentioned something that, you know, I thought maybe was from the past, but apparently still relevant. And I'm wondering, is it relevant because, uh, you know, the tangibility of business cards? Can you talk about how you still believe in the business card idea? Well, Take business cards everywhere. Yes, I believe in them. Some people will uh, take a picture of your business card, and that's perfectly fine. But if you go with nothing, you're trusting that the other person is going to Google your name. They have to remember your name, first of all. And there may be 10,000 people at this particular barbecue or breakfast. You have to uh, trust them that they're going to remember your name and then look you up. So if you have a business card, Put your cards in one pocket, organize them so that when you reach into your pocket and pull one out, it's the right side up and just extend it to them easy to take. Don't be the guy that has to pull out their wallet and has a business card in there somewhere that uh, is uh, dog-eared and a little scruffy looking. Uh, Make that uh, first impression. Take their card and put it in the other pocket. When the event is over, like sometime next week, you send them an email. It was great to meet you at the event. I love that. Okay, and on that note, when I'm leaving somewhere, do I just like back out and kind of ghost or do I speak up and say (laughs) goodbye to anyone in particular? How does that look? Because I find that can be sometimes quite daunting. It's not a bad idea to find the, the host. Now, at a large corporate event, that may, uh, it may be difficult to identify that person. But uh, if you've met a, a senior executive, for example, uh, just drop by really quick and say, this was just a fantastic event. And uh, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to be here. Uh, but it, you mentioned earlier about all of the hospitality. Uh, like there uh, are mountains of free food. Like don't be in the place where you're uh, eating messy beans or trying to cut pancakes and sausages while standing up. Uh, alcohol isn't your best friend at these events. Uh, there's always fountains of free booze moderation is the key here you're not there to party you're there to achieve your business goals uh videos of you dancing naked wearing only your hat and boots while hundreds cheer you on will probably not enhance your personal brand and and just know this sue and andy from the midst of the cheering and jeering crowd strangers are sure to upload videos to their social media channels and they will be there forever. And Sue does still regret Stampy 2017 for those videos. Let's talk about it. Anyway, uh, Robin, thank you so much for your time. We're going to direct people to brand it with Robin, R-O-B-Y-N dot com. Thank you and happy Stampede to you, sir. And happy Stampede to you too.
Thank you. That is Robin Braley, brand specialist, writer, and speaker. Tis the season to stay hydrated. And while your mind may turn to beer, I know Andy's does, when it comes to hydrating during the stampede, that may not be the best beverage to reach for when you're thirsty during the hot months of summer. Joining us to talk about the importance of hydration is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning, Dr. J. Good morning. Pleasure to have you. I don't know if you've been down to stampede yet, but it is hot, it is dry, it is like smoking hot pavement and you are going to be thirsty. So being hydrated is kind of one of those weird topics. You know, we talk about sleep, we talk about exercise. It's one of those things that, you know, you you kind of, it's a, it's a have to, but how much water do we actually need to drink per day? There's a good question that is unanswerable uh, to the most part. We always have this uh, notion that two liters a day is, is sort of a, a, a minimum that should be reached. Um, but if you go looking um, on sort of the research of this all, it's not really well defined at all. And and the, the message I hear over and over again, when you look at research is that it's co- it completely individualized. It's very custom. So you need a base amount for sure. You need excessive amounts. No, uh, you get you get fluid also from what we eat. Like if we eat um, anything that has a, a fluid base, with we are going to get fluid with that. Um, you know, any beverage. So beer does hydrate us. There's this myth that uh, anything alcoholic will dehydrate us because we might actually urinate more because it may have a diuretic effect. But we're still getting some hydration from it. So it's not like that is not fluid at all. Okay, uh, so, but you yeah. cannot just hydrate just with beer alone, uh, breakfast, lunch, supper, uh, even during stampede. Andy. Can we get a second opinion? <laughs> um, so my question, I wanna, <laughs> believe it or not, I want to bring it back to coffee and not the beer because Sue's looking at me. Um, the coffee, for example, when you say that, you know, we'll hydrate. And if I have a goal, for example, of two liters of water a day, would the coffee be within that umbrella or are we just talking the pure water is within that too yeah so so this might be controversial but i would say the coffee is is totally factors into the overall amount of fluid even though caffeine itself has a mild diuretic property right so you will pee out more but you're still getting hydrated from coffee should you be drinking coffee all day long as your sole beverage not at all (laughs) so it's not a good good idea but it shouldn't be like it isn't just water here Everything factors in, but water is a really good way to hydrate. So, uh, you know, so even uh, at Stampede, uh, if you want to enjoy um, beverages that are alcoholic, you could always mix in some water, some other beverage that isn't alcoholic. That's actually a good rule. And we've got nothing to do with hydration, just good rule of pacing yourself and, you know, having a good Stampede. Um, but, but absolutely, you know, alcohol does provide some fluid and that's real. That's true. And then you can you you know rest assured this is a good thing for most people. Thank you for adding that in because you were being a real party pooper. But I do yeah. want to ask you about beverages with added electrolytes. Are those actually yeah. a good thing? Should we be doing that? 
Uh, you certainly could, um, particularly if this is really hot weather and you're really sweating, like you're in the sun and you're sweating a lot, you will lose some salts and water alone might not be ideal. So something with electrolyte, which is sodium, potassium, for the most part, can really be helpful. Um, so this is like a Gatorade-like, Powerade-like uh, beverage. Some of them are very heavily sugared, mm-hmm. so really you're getting more sugar than electrolyte. But uh, you certainly can uh, can look at those, and that's better than just pure pump. The tent tends to not have that, so that is important, particularly on those really hot, really sunny days. I uh, in the morning have a whole bevy of beverages. Sue will tell you I almost have a cooler with me here with you know <laughs> some true. some low sodium you know kind of a V eight. Uh, I'll drink a yep. little water, some coffee, bone some broth. Bone broth. Uh, I mix all this stuff in. So for me, I'm never thirsty through the day, but. Yeah. Those times in the afternoon when I'm thirsty, it, it's a rarity. Uh, that tells me I'm dehydrated. But should we look at other signs to tell us we're dehydrated? How else can we tell, Dr. J? Well, so the best way, and without being graphic or too gross here, is looking at your urine. If your urine's very diluted, you are well hydrated. So the less yellow, right? So the more it looks like water, the better hydrated you are. If it's looking really dark or deep yellow, uh, you are probably getting quite dry. So that's one one easy way. I think some people start to feel a bit lightheaded or feel a little bit off, but we discount thirst. You know, you know, if you're thirsty, it's too late. No, if you're thirsty, you need fluid and drink. Uh, you can't use it as a sole thing because some people will describe being totally dehydrated and really not feeling that thirsty. But for the most part, if you feel dry in the mouth and thirsty, you're probably low on fluids and you need to drink. So listen to that, right? Uh, it, it is actually a pretty good, the body takes care of itself, put it that way. I, sh- I should say too, you know, we're talking about stampede and it, it's super hot down on the grounds, but there are, and frankly not enough, but there are some water bottle filling stations yeah. around the stampede. So they've done that for us and everybody really should take their own water bottle down there because it's about 10 bucks to buy a bottle of water. Yeah, and it's, and it's easy to do this mm-hmm. and uh, and also to go in the shade, take a break. You know, uh, you don't have to be in the blistering sun all day long. You know, in, in that shady break, you can have some, you know, take some water, take a sip of something, just uh, cool off and get that hydration in. Uh, so it's, you know, a good rule. This isn't just about stampede, but because it is stampede, we, you just have to really, really reinforce it because we see all kinds of trouble when people don't do it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering, do you think if for, for in your practice and maybe just in life in general, Dr. J, have you noticed that water consumption among the younger set has gone up big time? Because I know in my house, every one of my kids is rolling with a water bottle. Yeah. It's always topped yeah. up. They bring it to school. They carry it with them. When we went to school, you'd run to the yeah, water fountain and that was it. <laughs> Yeah, it, it absolutely is a trend, and I think part of it is, uh, I mean, it's almost a fashion statement, like yeah. what, what kind of water bottle you have. There's yeah. some that are really, really fancy and pricey and et cetera, but it's a good trend, right? It's a nice, healthy trend for people to take water and drink it, but yes, it's uh, uh, are some people excessive about it? I wouldn't doubt that. You know, we sometimes see people, and they're, you know, they have this, what appears to be a four-liter jug, and they're, it's... You know, they're, they're sipping at it like nonstop, like as if you can't even get by the next uh, five or ten minutes without drinking water. And I think that's a bit excessive. So just, uh, but the overall trend, I think, is a healthy one and a good one. I would not discount it. So just to wrap up then, you know, sort of on that note, can you drink too much water? Is that a thing? Yes, it is a thing. And and what happens, you dilute out your sodium, um, you know, technical terms for it, but it's actually quite dangerous. But you have to drink a lot of water, but it's pure water, nothing else, 
water, 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 you know, without any other sort of uh, fluid or food or anything. And you can dilute out the actual sodium in your blood. And it's, so we don't see it often. That's a pretty rare thing. But there is the occasional patient who is, is so excessive and mm. so um, obsessed with this that they do run into trouble that way. Yeah, not a problem for most of us. Thank you uh, for your insight, Dr. J, and happy stampede to you. Yippee yahoo. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Dr. Ted Jablonski is our on-call family physician.